Who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner. Welcome, everybody, to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar at Stanford. Welcome, YouTube community. It is great to have you, as well as the extended Stanford community. I am Ravi Balani, a lecturer in the Management Science and Engineering Department at Stanford and the director of Alchemist, um, an accelerator for enterprise startups. And we are so honored to bring you the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar, which is brought to you by STVP, the Stanford Engineering Entrepreneurship Center, and BASIS, the Business Association of Stanford Entrepreneurial Students. This is the first time in two and a half years that we are back in this auditorium. Um, I think it was in March of 2020 uh, that we were here last, maybe, or even earlier than that. And it is so fitting that we are commemorating this shift to something new with a self-identified nonconformist, Merev Oren. So I'm thrilled to have Merev Oren, the CEO of Versatile, here with us to kick off this new ETL. Merev loves change, and this is one of the most momentous changes that we've had in the last two and a half years. Merev is the CEO and one of four co-founders of Versatile, which aims to turn construction into a fully controllable manufacturing process and make rapid data-driven decisions that support job site productivity and safety. And Merov is going to tell you more about Versatile in a moment. Um, hailing from Israel, Merov is another example of amazing Israeli talent that the U.S. has been a beneficiary of. And when she was growing up in Israel, she grew up with a strong interest in construction, nurtured by her father, who was a general contractor. And she advocates for the construction industry, which many may consider to be unsexy. But she calls construction innovative, forward-thinking, and worthy of the world's leading technology investments. Um, she has, she's a triple degree holder uh, with a bachelor's in economics and management, a master's in law, and an executive MBA. And if that's not enough, she's also a former lieutenant um, in the Israeli Air Force. Um, Merev spent 10 years at Israel, in, in Israel at Intel, um, where she spearheaded BizOps biz, biz and financial services and led international projects with multicultural teams. And then in 2011, she started her entrepreneurial journey leading several nonprofits and then sort of a precursor to Versatile, another construction company. And then ultimately in 2016, she co-founded Versatile. Versatile has gone on to raise over $100 million in funding from um, funds like Tiger Global and Insight Partners. And, so, and also Versatile became the first construction technology firm uh, that was named a technology pioneer by the World Economic Forum. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Merov to ETL. So Merev, I know there's so much that we want to talk about, <laughs> uh, but before we do, can you just describe to people what Versatile is or just give an intro a quick introduction? Yeah, uh, glad that. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, I, I shouted it out, like two and a half years of not being in person. Yes. Oh my God. So truly honored and thank you everyone for, for joining us. I'll, I'll make uh, your time worthwhile, I promise that. Um, and yeah, if I had to introduce Versatile in like just a couple of words, I'll, I'll start with kind of like what we stand for, right? And it's allowing people access to information at the end of the day. And I, I love to say to my team, we empower superintendents that happen to be the ones that build our world, everything around us. This building is relatively new, I believe. So someone was here building it probably not too long ago. 
allowing them to control over their own processes in ways that they never thought was possible before, is generally what we do. We do that through um, collecting a lot of uh, data points in a very uh, structured and repeatable way that allows us to truly tell the story of the job site and feed it back to our users uh, in a way that they can act upon. So that's generally it in, in, in a nutshell, I'll say. And I'll, I'll say a word about kind of like the, the, the gap, I guess, of, of the industry, or what I perceive as the gap of the industry. We don't know how long things really take. Like we, we don't measure. And if you don't measure, you can't really improve, can you? So I, I view versatile almost as the um, actuals on plan versus actuals, which is pretty much the basis of any improvement that I could think of. And that kind of like what our solution looks like. And with that, I'll, I'll be done talking about, uh, about versatile uh, other than the journey itself, which we'll bring it up a bit again. Um, this is what the data looks like. If you want to make your users the center of, of your attention, if you want to know that you've hit home in making things really simple for the people that you serve. So we make everything very easy to read, highly kind of like digestible, as I like to call it. And we use the crane uh, as a way to get the data out of job sites. And it just happens to be that that's our first product, and it serves that purpose of being deliberate in, in how we serve the construction industry. Uh, but it allows us to collect thousands of data points again and again and again. Translate that story, hand it over to superintendents at 5 a.m. every morning in those kind of like screens that you see on just behind me. Um, and then, honestly, watch them shave off hours, days, and weeks from their schedule, assume control over, over time, which is generally an unsafe um, time of the day, um, gain back, I don't know, five weeks, we're talking March of 2020. Uh, some of our customers have gone into shelter in place just to gain that time back by controlling their process. So that's versatile in, in a nutshell, I guess. And yeah, we've gone on to raise just a little bit of money. Just a little bit of money. Yes. Um, well, so I'm going to kick it off with some questions. Then I'm going to turn it over to the students in about 15 to 20 minutes. So if you guys have questions, start thinking about them. Um, Merav, I wanted to start, it off, start off with, you know, I think one of the hallmark intuitions that all founders either have to hone or develop is figuring out when to listen to advice <laughs> and when to say no to advice and stick to your own convictions. Now, I'm sure and I've heard that when you were starting off, you know, people were trying to dissuade you from doing construction technology. It's not exactly the sexiest industry to go into or an industry that people that's known for you know, being the birthplace of great tech unicorns. So can you share your perspective on when you should say yes and listen to advice and when you should go in the opposite direction? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a, a beautiful question. And, and as, as you guys are kind of like at the, at the earlier stages, and I still remember it wasn't that long ago that, that I was probably in your seat. And, I'll start by saying always listen to advice. Uh, the part that I, I kind of like have a slightly different approach towards is <laughs> do you follow advice and is that just doing what you're told? So I'll say listen to advice and never do what you're told. And I think the, the, the best stories I guess I can share around that would be um, 
to your point, construction isn't the most kind of like attractive uh, industry or it doesn't perceive to be uh, very attractive. Uh, I was told it's impossible. I was told that um, I couldn't raise money for, for uh, a venture like this. And I think probably, probably the best story is uh, we, we just got our pre-seed funding and I was getting a lot of advice from really smart people. These would be our first investors and they would constantly tell me what they think should be done. Now, probably being an Israeli as well, uh, my tendency was to listen and filter and find my own path. And my own path is never do what they say. I'll, I'll say more than that, there were three partners and the beauty was to actually connect what they were saying and they, they never agreed. <laughs> I don't think I ever heard the same advice from, from all three of them. So I would take that and, and I would find a fourth way, which would be the versatile way, which would be my way. And I'm probably on the streets of San Francisco and I get a call from one of those partners. I was like, wow, you, you don't listen. You just don't listen. I was like, on the contrary, I, I do, but I don't do what you tell me to do. By the way, you guys never agree, just so you know. Um, and it, it was a, a defining moment, I think, in understanding that when people give you advice, they, they seem to think that you should just do what they told you to do. That is not advice. Advice is knowing to, to be in the back seat, to, to support, to tell you what I think but always know that you know best. And that's how I give advice today. If, if I mentor anyone, I was like, I'm not in your shoes and I'm not at the driver's seat. So I'm only gonna tell you what worked for me or, or what I think, but that's it. Uh, a good advisor or a good mentor doesn't tell you what to do. They, so you always do your path. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> you always create your own path. Even if it's a slight modification, that's like a religious rule for you. And I think that is Probably. pattern matching with many great founders. <laughs> now, Merv is sort of famous for um, asking for help and always getting it, okay? And so I sure. wanted to invite Merv to sh spill her secrets, okay? Um, can you share what, it, what, what are the secrets to asking for help and getting help? And what are the mistakes that you see other founders <laughs> who ask for help and don't get it? Why do they fail? Yeah, uh, A, you're absolutely right. I literally get 99.9% .9 of my requests actually uh, delivered or, or fulfilled. 99.9% .9 of things that you ask for people will follow up on and do. Yes. Okay, so share, yes. spill. Just about, just about. So I'll start by saying everyone wants to help you. Like even those advices that I was talking about, like people really want to help. The entrepreneurial community is incredible. There's so many people that have been on this journey before me and, and before you, and, and they really want to help. The, the big problem is time. That's the one thing that we all don't have enough of. And when I was just getting started, I had time, <laughs> but whoever wants to help me doesn't necessarily have it. And I remember just being extremely accessible myself. I would go anywhere that the other person would be willing to meet me at. I'd, literally be time zone agnostic. I would meet anywhere, anytime, any, anyone that would be willing to help me, I would just make myself, uh, I remove all constraints. And I think that's a big part of it. Another part of it, um, I'll tell you a story. 
So <laughs> I'm a storyteller. So, uh, and I, I think people learn really well from, from stories. So um, this is me pretty much at the beginning of our journey. Mind you, everyone tells me that I'm, I'm probably wrong and this can't be done. Like I've heard a lot. Um, but we've gone through mass challenge. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of the accelerator, but uh, it's, it's a great one. And we just graduated and we actually won. We won mass challenge and, and the CEO of mass challenge congratulated us. And, and I can't say it, I'm going to make it to Boston and then I'm going to ask for help. And it's like anything you need. So I sent this email and I thought I was completely over the top. Like it was a well-structured, but relatively long email that said, Hey, I've done the research. I'm coming to Boston. These are the dates. This is what I need. And here is why I need it. And here are the people, here are the, the like a little snippet of, of what I would want you to, to forward to these people. And like, I would really love for you to do this for me. I was specific. I, I, I did the research. And I want to say a word about doing the research. And I asked for very tangible things. I knew he had the connections and all I asked for is literally forward my email or forward the snippet to the person and, and I explained why. He delivered on all of those. And when I actually made it to, to Boston, he, he came out and, and he shook my hand and was like, this is the best founder kind of like help email I've ever received. I was like, I, I thought I was completely over the line. I was like, no, because I really want to help. And most people will, will confuse me or will tell me, hey, please introduce me to investors. Do not do that. <laughs> like, no one has the time to think for us. Who's the right investor for us? Who, who do they know? What, what is your business about? And, and why would that connection even make sense? So if I want to help, I need to know exactly what you're asking me to do. So if I were to say, hey, I'm, I'm not even fundraising yet, which is what I did at the time, but I want to understand what it would take to get their money, and here's my question, and here's my why, then they would know whether to say yay or nay to, to even the meeting itself. And if I don't have a product yet and I want to talk to customers, then again, I need to be very clear about the fact that what I'm asking for is to, to give them a glimpse of what the future looks like. And I was, I was kind of out there. I was like, they need to know what's coming. And that's what I have to offer in exchange for their time. And that worked like a charm. Mm. So today, when I get emails and, and, and founders do contact me for help, I think that's the first thing I say. Be specific. Make it easy for me to help you. And if you make it that easy, then people will help. Be specific. Do your research. Show me that, that you know exactly why you're, you're even asking for my help and for my time. And chances are that, that I will help just like everyone helped me earlier on in the journey. And hopefully will keep helping me after I spill all my secrets. With <laughs> well, I, I think they will. And I think that, so. Um, that's incredibly helpful and powerful. And on this idea of spilling secrets, can we talk a bit about vulnerability and leadership? Uh, um, Oftentimes, being a CEO can be a very lonely job, especially if you're doing something new and everybody's a naysayer, um, and you sort of have this, there's an instinct to try to show strength. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, at the same time, some of the deepest, most powerful teams come through leaders exposing themselves in a, in a vulnerable way. Can you speak to your philosophy about leading? Do you lead with vulnerability? And if so, 
what's your philosophy and approach and experience with that? Yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's probably a question to 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 my team. And I always kind of I think leaders can always do better, and I do my best to to learn and and understand. Uh, but uh, wow, so transparency and, and vulnerability are hardly ever kind of like spoken of or or touched upon, right? Yeah. Um, I I believe I do. I I think there's a there's a right and a wrong in, in transparency and it goes through understanding your audience. It's, it's true for how you ask for help. I, I think it's like the, the way I personally operate, but um, it, if you take the same principles of understanding your audience, understanding what you're trying to give and what you're trying to receive, then using transparency in, in a way that allows people to understand your message. And then on, on vulnerability, so I wouldn't like say things like, here are the numbers, just you know, figure it out. I'll say, here's what the numbers are telling us. Here's the story that I'm reading from, from these numbers. So I shared the numbers, but not as a like, okay, in your face, just get it and, and hopefully you'll understand what they mean. So I would usually use more of, a, of advanced tools of, of making sure people are along on the journey. Uh, vulnerability, once again, I'll, I'll probably share uh, a story. And like Going back to, I guess, also why I started Versatile and, and you mentioned my, my father, so. Um, yeah, I'm kind of like the black sheep of my own family because uh, I went to Intel, but dad is a GC and, and my brother's a project manager. I shouldn't have done that. I should have been a superintendent. Uh, I, came back for, I came back to construction pretty much because of, of an accident on, on my brother's job site. He actually lost a worker that day and that kind of triggered the whole uh, control over manufacturing, give the power to the superintendents. Uh, everything that we do today is pretty much triggered from, from a eureka moment that day about can job sites be controlled? And my dad is probably one of my best advisors. Um, and I've, I've moved here and haven't seen him for, for a while, pandemics and all. And he actually came to visit when we were raising our Series B. And he came and he left pretty much like that. This was a very short uh, fundraise. So I, I think he got here right about when we signed the term sheet and he left the day before we closed the round. And I announced the round to our team internally a day after he left. And it's a, it's a moment of celebration. Everyone probably thinks that I'm super strong, right? Speaking of, of vulnerability. And I chose to, to share, and I'm guess, I guess I'm sharing here too, but I shared that this was actually really hard for me because uh, my dad is, is, is terminally ill and we're all humans and this would potentially have been my last chance of, of saying goodbye and I was really busy closing around. So uh, the reason I'm sharing this and the reason I, I kind of like realized that was, to me, that was natural. I didn't think of it as, as vulnerability or that this was just me sharing something with my team. I'm very open. And, and, but one of my team members sent me an email after the, the all hands saying, wow, like, I don't think you understood how incredibly powerful that moment was. And I didn't. And, and 
but it made me think about vulnerability and about kind of like transparency and the things that you say and, and when you say it and, and how you show that you're actually human. So it's really hard to show that you're human because uh, I've, from everyone telling me that I cannot do this to raising over $109 million, a hundred of those were during a pandemic uh, in a, to your point, non-sexy industry. Uh, and by the way, guys, uh, with a solution that actually is hardware-enabled SaaS, software as a service, like very, very unusual. Uh, I must be good, somewhat human and then somewhat <laughs> not. <laughs> there is a computer somewhere. Um, the ability to show that, that it's okay is, is incredibly powerful. And, and my team actually taught me that by that email and by the responses that I got later. Because we could just be super strong all the time and have everyone think that we're superhumans. Or we can say, yeah, like we're, we're doing things that no one else seems to have just cracked the code of just yet. And, and we're probably cracking some codes. But we're, we also have a life, we have a family, we, we go through things and, and we regret not having time or, or not being able to say goodbye. So uh, I think there's a lot to say. About, to, there's more to say to be said about that. Well, yeah, and I do think that when you humanize yourself, you give permission to everybody else in the team to be humans too and it creates hopefully. and people will hopefully yeah. it creates uh, it, the team coheres. I want to open it up for questions from the students. Hello. <laughs> hey. uh, my name is Kasi. Uh, first, I want to thank you so much for your time. Uh, recently, I was doing a bit of reflecting on achievements. And for example, I think a lot of us, Stanford is in a sense an achievement. And I remember before Stanford, I would look at Stanford students as like, like there was a distinct gap between myself and the Stanford student. But then once I got here, I realized that I'm still fundamentally the same person I am from before. So I just wanted to ask, is success, is there something that fundamentally changes you once you go through success? Or is success kind of like a hub, like Stanford is, that gathers people with innate born qualities in them? Wow. Uh, I, I, I view, our, at, at least my personal journey, I always say, and, and I probably frustrate my team quite a bit when I say that, I always say that we're 2% done. And if I'm 2% done, it might be too early to, to call success, right? But uh, I think the journey changes you. And, and different steps in the journey should change you for the better, though. Like, I, I do my best to learn. I definitely hope that I pay tuition while well, we're in Stanford, right? So if you make a mistake, it's only about what you learned from it. Um, if you learn well, then the tuition was well worth it and you might be just one step closer to graduation. You could take a mark on, on yet another class. By the way, I'm also a, um, a, a dropout, but we won't talk about that, right? Mm. <laughs> you can share, degrees, but... you can share, I think that's great. <laughs> My co-founder, speaking of success, right? So I do have three degrees, cool about that, but then there's one that I dropped out on, on the last class because <laughs> I just I was doing two degrees at the same time, two different universities, working full time at Intel. Like I literally didn't know what train I was supposed to be on at, at, at any given time of the day. I was like, I'm just I'm gonna get back to that, you know, final class, maybe in a year or two, and I never did. Uh, but uh, my co-founders always used to kind of like uh, make fun of me, saying like, we could still say you're a dropout in Silicon Valley. That's probably a good thing. So. <laughs> I was thinking of failures too, uh, but um, 
No, I don't, I don't think success should change you. I think it should be taken with humility and with an understanding that there's probably new things to learn. And if you've mastered one thing, I think I said that um, the, it wasn't very long between our Series A and our Series B, for example. And, and I remember saying, wow, I, I think I've got this. And then it's probably going to be so different next time I, I go out there that maybe I, maybe I don't, right? And count your success for what it was and, and, and seek for the next learning would be like how I, I would look at that. But I'm probably changed in many ways. Hi, I'm Laura. Um, so you mentioned that you're one of the co-founders of um, your company. Um, I just wanted to ask, how did you guys meet? Um, what are your relationships like? Um, you know, the different areas of expertise and what advice would you give um, in building a team uh, to create a new uh, startup or company? Building a team. <laughs> Ask me again in a few years now. <laughs> um, again, constantly changing, right? So small teams versus big teams. Um, founders would be, A, I'm actually, I'm actually married to one of my co-founders, so kind of like that, that would be the longest relationship and I always say that that's a huge advantage because you've been through so much together. You, you kind of like know how to power through crises. Uh, the others was, um, <laughs> I think, the longest interview process. So one of my co-founders was uh, an introduction at a, at a conference. And he always said that I had him at a low. I actually argued that he put me through the longest interview process, sending me to you know, his VC friends and, and all that. I knew I needed someone to kind of like translate the crazy scientist and maybe the crazy business person to, to, to a product language. So, so this was kind of like how we, how we connected. Um, and then the, the fourth co-founder was uh, a friend of, of the third co-founder and was just the right person at the right time. So, so I think founding teams and, and teams in general is, is a point in time. It's like magic, and and it 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 changes. We can changes. It changes over time, and the relationships evolve, and um, it's a tough journey. So it, it really puts a strain on on any relationships, and um, it's about knowing that something is right for you in the moment, and 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 allowing yourself to to. To, to trust and to and to bond even if they weren't your your best friends from from kindergarten because I don't know many founding stories where, where everyone were like childhood friends um, so there's there's a lot to be said about smaller or large kind of like founding teams I, I find four to have been a really good number it's, it's like a stable kind of like four-legged table that you could put quite a lot of weight on it uh, and then over time it, it, it changes and, and you evolve and the company grows and, and it, it, it just really does change as, as the team grows. Uh, I generally look at startups as, as mini projects. So the first two years and the second two years, like if we could look at, at a company at, at a two year intervals and just think of everything as, as a project and people should come together over the project and, and complete the task. And then we'll see what's next. And, and with that mentality, you could form super strong teams without overthinking what's next, because you never know in a startup anyways what's, what's going to be next. So 
Uh, it's an interesting one. So if a student is wrestling with whether or not somebody else should be considered a co-founder, you know, taking the leap and joining um, with somebody else as a co-founder, okay. is there any guidance that you have about when you know that somebody is a good co-founder fit versus just a founding employee? Mm-hmm. Um, what makes somebody cross that bar for you saying, check, this is, a, this is my co-founder? Mm. Probably just the, the time. If it's really early in the journey, um, it's not a, a, an employment relationship just yet. You really need someone or you yourself just want to be a part of something that is so raw. It hasn't even begun yet. And it's, it takes so much building and, and so much you know, willpower to, to create something out of nothing. It did not exist. Um, then that's a co-founder. And can you share, have there been any struggles in having this, this co-founder relationship? Because I'm sensing that over time. Um, and it, are you able or willing to share any stories about the difficulties with co-founder relationships and how you can still have good fights as co-founders and stay connected? Oh, just take it into a room and fight it out and, and walk out with, with a, a good disagreeing commit sometimes would be, would be it, really. Disagreeing commit means we, we agree to disagree, but we commit yes. to the decision. Disagreeing yeah. commit it means Eventually, a decision has to be made, and if we couldn't agree, then yes, there's got to be one decision maker, even in a founding team, there's got to be one decision maker, mainly uh, the CEO, and then you walk out of the room as if you agreed. So whatever happened in that room stayed in that room, and everyone else perceives that decision as, as, and it's true for, for leadership regardless of founding teams. The minute the decision has been made, it's final and you have to stand behind it. So think of a leader that goes back to their team and says, I didn't agree. Like, I I don't actually believe in this decision. Now let's go execute on it. I don't know, (laughs) probably not going to work very well. If you say, this is the decision, this is why we have to do this. And sometimes it it involves like tough decisions, like uh, stop providing a service, you know, Kill, kill, kill a feature. It's, people have worked, have worked really hard on something and, and you might make a decision to stop it altogether. You have to have that alignment. So yes, disagreeing commit would be one of the challenges, not just in a founding team, but in, in any kind of like leadership relationship. And, it, and it's hard. I'm not sure I have the code on that one. I can break the code on many things. Probably this one, not yet. <laughs> but it sounds like one of your principles is, is that there is respect, that um, each co-founder probably owns their own domain and they get to make decisions in that domain. But when there's conflict, everybody agrees that you or the CEO will make the decision. Yes. Even if they disagree, they'll commit. Yes. And you had that understanding from the beginning. Yes. Okay. And if you ever lose that, then it's time to separate. Then it's time to separate. If it's you lose definitely that, time. Trust. If you lose that, just separate it. You cannot continue without that trust and without that domain and without that Disagree and commit. Other questions? Hi, I'm Aman. Uh, I heard your uh, little anecdote on how you're at a stage where you weren't ready to raise money, but you still wanted to speak to people and get a, get a sense of how you might do that in the future, even if that was an if, uh, not so much as a commitment. Um, we often treat conversations like that as transactional, that when I come to you, you know, I expect something out of you, but clearly those people didn't know whether you know, your startup was going to build up to something that they could invest in. So how did you approach those conversations uh, at the start and during the conversation itself? Ah, conviction more than anything else. So always be selling, always be closing, uh, but, but have your intent 
out there, right? So, so those early conversations where this is what I'm building. What will it take for you to fund this? And by the way, most of them said, I'll never fund this. <laughs> like, in all honesty, like, <laughs> and they offered me great advice as to why I should not be doing that. I remember conversations with investors that said, I would invest in you. You seem like an incredible founder. Like, you would go through walls to, to build what you believe in. But not this construction thing and this hardware thing or whatever. Like, once you pivot, come back. Um, but having those conversations in a non-fundraising setting allows you to learn really fast, super fast. But you have to listen. So, and again, since I wasn't there to say I'm asking for your money and, and the framework was very clear, some of them became my mentors and, and my advisors. To today, I did not take their money, but they're my best friends, they're my advisors. I think that's actually how we met. <laughs> like the, one one investor Jocelyn. that yeah was, yeah yeah yes. Jocelyn a Stanford yes. alum. Mm -hmm. So yeah. call it serendipity and, and 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 the way to to open doors, but those conversations led to incredible things that you don't necessarily expect. Speaking of of that asking for help and that first kind of like email that I sent, uh, I ended up in a in a conversation with a reporter on, on that trip and. He offered a stage in this really important construction industry event. And boy, was I not ready for that. So lots of prep, but I took the stage. And I think I could date so much of our current customers and relationships and how we built the business and how we built our uh, trusted kind of like partnerships with our, our first customers to, to that moment of someone randomly accepting my request to, to talk and tell them what I was building. And that sparkly eyes that you have when you truly believe you're building something that's going to change the world and you don't care if no one else believes you. Now everyone believes me, speaking of success, right? Like it's, it's too easy. It's, it's hard when no one does. And that's exactly where you should shine. Like just go all the way. Don't. Don't do what you're told. Listen to advice, but don't do what you're told. Um, and speak to investors that way. Um, so another thing about fundraising and without spilling all my secrets, um, I think the moment between getting a ton of no's to getting so many yeses, it got confusing, honestly. That's, that's another problem. No one ever talks about what happens when you're oversubscribed and you actually have to it's turn it down. Problem. We can talk about that too. Yes. <laughs> like turning down short term sheets. I don't want to talk about that. That's a good problem to have, but it's a real problem. Uh, I think too many founders have the approach of like, please give me money. Like I really want my dream to, to happen and, and, and I want to partner with you and I want to kind of like, I need your money and, and I'll then build it. And my approach has always been, and I realized that later on, it's just in a natural way. I, I never really gave it any thought, but my approach would be, I'm building this incredible thing and I'm going to build it with or without you. Like you have nothing, like your response has nothing to do with it. And I'm offering this amazing opportunity. Take it, leave it. it it's going to be your loss if, if you kind of like didn't take it. Uh, and I will build. I will build with or without co-founders. I will build with or without investors. I will build with or without a team. Like, don't build without a team, by the way. But <laughs> it's just really hard. Um, but that conviction that you know what you're doing and you're going to build it, 
knowing that things will change and it's not exactly going to be what you believed it would be. I think I said I'm going to start in New York. We never were like we're not even in New York today. Like there's many things that have changed along the way, but I think I always had that confidence that I am building it, and that's how I approached investors. Even if it was just for like, what does it take to 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 get your money when the time is right? So. Terrific, great answer, <laughs> Ravi. Yeah. I'm going to ask on behalf of the students tuning in online. Oh, please, sorry, thank you, Mandy. The most upvoted question on Zoom right now is, "How have you dealt with evolving roles?" Hmm, mine or others? <laughs> I think the CEO roles evolve as well. <laughs> um, similar to to what I said about the two year kind of like tenure, if you like. So you, you, you have to look at things, as, and, and that's an advice I got, by the way, that it's not uh, originally mine. I, I wish I could give credit. I don't remember who, who told me that. But if you truly kind of like sign a contract for, well, not for real, but in, in a mindset of this is what we're going to do, this is the next milestone that we're going towards, then the roles evolve naturally. And also kind of like where disagreements happen, you know that you have to separate almost naturally. Um, and then as companies grow, I believe there are more opportunities. So, so coming from Intel and, and even as, a, as, a, as an Air Force commander, if organizations are really big, you could move people around. You could, you could say, okay, this is not the right role for you, but maybe something else. In a startup, it's, you're, you need to evolve or, or kind of like get off the bus in, in the next stop. Um, so it's... I think it's still evolving. That's, it's one of the, of the hardest kind of like questions to answer because I think if you asked me the same question in five years, I'll probably give a different answer than what I would give today. But I, I just, I look at people and I look at the roles and, and I would try to make it work, I guess. And do you ever feel imposter syndrome when you go into a new phase? When, and this is sort of dovetailing oh, yeah. off of the first question. If, when you began, if you were looking at Series B CEOs, I don't know if you vaulted them on a pedestal and said they have something that I don't have. Um, is your experience now that you actually had everything at day one that you needed? Or when you go into each new phase, are you feeling um, some type of imposter syndrome or a need to, to develop skills? And if so, how? Oh, God, yeah. Don't let that syndrome get the best of you. It's brutal. And absolutely, I think everyone goes through this on one stage or another. We're like, oh, someone turns on the light and finds out. Uh, but uh, yes, it's, 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 it's real. And it takes different shapes as, at, at different stages. But I'll say something about like Series B founders or even like every time that I was at a certain kind of like stage in, in the journey, I would look at the ones that have taken the path before me and I would seek their advice. Speaking again of, of that advice, I aspire to talk to people that have done things that I haven't done. Because it's kind of boring having the conversations about the things I've already achieved. It's, it's great, but then I'm the mentor instead of the mentee. And, and I take that role sometimes too. But um, I'm not intimidated by people that have taken their companies to steps and heights that I haven't just yet. Um, so. I think every time I try to find the next kind of like person to talk to that have done things that I haven't done yet, and I look back at like, oh wow, like I did have people on a pedestal for, for the stages that, that I just marked down on, and 
that's the beauty of, of, of being told something is impossible. You look for those who have actually done that. And I was like, I, 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 imposter syndrome or not? Yeah, I, 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 if they can do it, I can do it too. So guys, if, if I can do it, then, then you can do it too, is what I'll say. <laughs> and um, always look for someone that has done the things that someone else told you to, or tells you is impossible. And, and you might just get it right. I, I like to say that I enjoy the tick mark of done over tasks that were rendered impossible <laughs> just like a minute before. So. Mm. Well, on that, I think I'm going to end, draw to an end, um, our first inaugural ETL in person in over two years. So everybody join me in thanking Merov. Um, the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. To learn more, please visit us at eCorner.stanford.edu.